When the Rotary Clubs of the eastern half of Kansas met in their district conference in Topeka, the home city of Dr. Kenneth McFarland, he addressed the closing banquet of the conference. Past District Governor Giles Tileman gave Dr. McFarland an excellent introduction, and this is a recording of what followed. I never cease to marvel at the variety of introductions that I can get in the course of a year. I told a group Saturday night, sometimes you get a variety in the course of a day. I was up in Chicago and I talked to a luncheon meeting of the West Side YMCA and the man who introduced me, I told him about my cultural attainments and my educational background and religious activities and all the things that I do. And that evening I went over and talked to a zone meeting of Chevrolet. And the man who introduced me there just said this. He said, if a man has no hair here in front, it means that he thinks. And if he has no hair back here, it means he's sexy. And if he has no hair either place, it means he thinks he's sexy. <laughs> so you see, I appreciate this nice running start that uh, you gave me here. I'm grateful to you. I'm more disappointed than you that the musical group didn't show up because I was planning on preparing my speech during that uh, interlude. <laughs> I am genuinely glad to see you, and I think now that I've seen you, I'll remove my glasses. Um, if this weren't such a cultured group, I'd have probably said take my glasses off. But I would like for you to know that I understand a preposition is not a good word to end a sentence with. <laughs> or it's just a matter of ending sentences and prepositions in something that I want to get in. Uh, I remember the boy who was sick, and he said to his mother, what did you bring that book that I didn't want to be read to out of up for? <laughs> You remember the freshman down at Texas University objected to the required course in English? For all freshmen, he said, I don't need none. He said, I ain't never made but one mistake in my whole life, and I've seen that before I've done it, and I've taken it back. <laughs> Someone told me about the salesman, knocked on the door, and a very disheveled woman came to the door, and she said, we don't need none. He said, how do you know you don't, lady? I might be selling grammars. <laughs> This is not only the anniversary of George Washington's birth, but uh, in case you don't know it, today is the anniversary of the first five and ten cent store in this country. I was in one of those, and here was a, a whole rack of reading glasses and a man trying these on. He'd try on one pair, and he'd squint and scowl the copy, and he'd put that pair back, and he'd try another pair. And after a while, I said, that's kind of a hard way, isn't it, to select a pair of reading glasses? And he said, oh, my, indeed it is, especially when you're doing it for a friend. <laughs> Well, I feel like that uh, I'm doing this for friends. Uh, actually, I do. Speaking of the friends, I told the group Saturday night about the six salesmen over here at Kansas City who won the company award for outstanding sales during the year. And the prize for that was a free trip out to California to the company convention with all expenses paid. Well, all six of these men went out there together, but one of them was going to come back one day earlier than the others. On the day he was due back, his wife was down at the airport there in Kansas City to meet his plane. The plane came in, and he wasn't on it. Well, she was a little concerned about that, and she drove home by herself, and the more she thought about it, the more worried she got. And the time she got home, she was just really quite upset about it, and she sent telegrams to each one of these other five men who had gone out there with her husband. Telegrams were all worded the same. It just said, is Jim with you? Well, 20 minutes later, Jim walked in the door. He'd just taken a later plane, and everything was all right, but... Over a period of the next few hours, his wife got answers back from all five of these telegrams, and each one said, yes, Jim is with me. 
Now, this is what we mean by friends, you know, that you can count on. You don't have to spell it out for them. Someone told me about the man who got in real late at night, and he didn't want to disturb his wife, and he took his shoes off and started to sneak upstairs, and the cuckoo and the cuckoo clock came out. And he went cuckoo three times and stopped. Well, this man knew that wouldn't do, so he went down and set it back so that he went uh, nine more times. He thought 12 sounded a little better than three. And next morning at breakfast, his wife said, we're going to have to have that cuckoo clock fixed. Well, he said, what seems to be the matter with the deer? Well, she said, last night the cuckoo came out and went three times. And then he said, oh, hell, and went nine more. <laughs> well, I am uh, pleased... To see you, and I'm glad to see these wives here. I mean, you helped this meeting, and long about the second day, they need help, these meetings do. And I tell you, you, you help it. You look good uh, uh, to me. I go to so many conventions. I tell the people I know how some of these fellows feel about taking their wives to conventions. They feel like a, a man who goes hunting with a game warden. <coughs> uh, I like the recognition that comes to the people who have served. That's important, too, because it's a great service when you come up through the ranks of Rotary, and I like to see the people honored and recognized, and I think Rotary has a nice balance in doing that sort of thing. Sometimes we overdo that. I did a Chamber of Commerce meeting not long ago up in Nebraska, and I never saw so many plaques. I mean, it took them two hours to give out the plaques. Everybody got a plaque except me and the, the waitresses. We didn't get any. <laughs> and, and, of course, that many were not very meaningful, and... I remember after that, the new president of the Chamber of Commerce got up and he said, what we need in this town is a new industry. Well, I suggested that they build a plaque factory uh, there. <laughs> and I told him if they could get the local business, they could keep three shifts going the year round. I know the big criticism of Rotary clubs. I know the big criticism of all civic clubs. We've got some people who are saying that these things are over the hill. We've got some people who are saying that we don't have time for this in our society anymore. We've got folks who are saying it's going to go the way of a lot of the fraternal organizations. Well, I'd like to say to you, uh, in all sincerity, if that happens, we're going to be missing, I think, the biggest opportunity we've ever had since Rotary was founded. I think the opportunities for Rotary now, and I'm sincere about this, are much greater than they were when the organization were founded, much greater than Paul Harris could even possibly have envisioned. I don't believe he could have understood, or anyone could have understood, how badly we would need this kind of an organization when we got down this far. Now, I was talking to a man just the other day, and he said that he thought the trouble with civic clubs was that he said all they do is talk, and he said you go down there, and they eat, and they sing, and they talk. And the whole inference there was that when you're talking, you're wasting your time. And he was one of those fellows who thinks there are talkers and there are doers, and that you can't be both. Well, of course, you can't be much of a doer on a very large scale anymore unless you can talk, unless you can communicate effectively with other people then your results are going to be limited pretty much to what you yourself can do. And that isn't very much. And that doesn't meet the need at all in a modern world like this. And I said to this man, when Christ gave the Sermon on the Mount, what would you call him, a doer or a talker? When you consider the results. What would you call Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill, of whom it said he mobilized the English language and sent it to fight sent it into war, and that was about all he had when he first got in there. But it saved the free world, the spirit that he engendered in the people who heard him. Was he a talker or was he a doer? 
I think there's never been a time when we needed to have occasions marked aside and we say on that day we're going to talk and we're going to talk about things that make a difference. And I think we need to do that in Rotary. I know some Rotary clubs that have exceedingly dull programs and you know why? They don't want to talk about anything controversial. That means they don't want to talk about anything that makes a difference unless an issue is dead and buried or completely accepted by everyone. It has no place on the program. Well, if we take that kind of an attitude, then we can't talk about things that vitally make a difference. I think we need, as we've never needed before, we need places where we can talk about the things that make a difference. Words, the right words, have never been so important. We have a slogan among the advertising men especially that one picture is worth a thousand words. I was up in Iowa, and here was an editor of a small-town newspaper who took exception to that, and I agree with him. I mean, you give me a thousand words, I'd take the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm and the Hippocratic Oath. I'd take a Shakespearean sonnet. I'd take the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. I'd take Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and I'd still have almost enough words left for the Boy Scout Oath. I wouldn't trade those thousand words for any picture in the whole world. I think there's never been a time when we needed the right kind of words on our hearts. The words that we live by, we do that, and we've got a time set aside for it once a week in Rotary. I talked to Rotary Club about the Rotary Wheel, and I said, I think time now has come to talk about the Rotary Why. We know what's happening. What we need now is to know why. This is the difference between a news reporter and a news analyst. And it's in meetings where we can take time to understand the why of this thing. I look back in my life and I can see that there are days that dated my life. I, I was telling doctors meeting over in Wichita about this not long ago. I think we all have that experience. I say there are days from what, that day forward, I did something significantly differently than I had done it before. I very often those were meeting days. I know a man in a corporation, I said to him, how long have you worked for the company? He said, ever since they threatened to fire me. <laughs> well, you see, there was a day in his life and from that day forward, he did something differently than he had done before. I was down in Atlanta. I addressed a lovely dinner meeting they were having down there. And I was sitting up at the head table before the program had started, and I was sitting beside a lovely lady as I was tonight. After dinner, she got out one of these continental-looking cigars like I was working on there and started trimming that up, and I thought she was getting it ready for me. I said, is that uh, going to be for me? She said, no, I'm sorry. She said, I'm going to burn this one myself. And sure enough, she fired it up and and was smoking it very gracefully, I thought. And I said, well, how long have you been smoking cigars? She said, ever since my husband found a cigar butt in my ashtray at home. <laughs> well, <clears throat> uh, there was a day in her life, you see. And from that day forward, she did something differently than she had done it before. Now, I don't mean that we can do everything of this kind that needs to be done. You can't do it once a week in a rotary meeting, but you can do something. You can make a contribution. I went down to Jonesboro, Arkansas. Those are good people down there. I don't know whether you know them or not. They're a little bit rough around the ears, some of them, but I mean their hearts are as big as all out of doors. They're kindly. They're generous. They're good people. I was down there right before Christmas, and the town was all agog. Uh, they had had the Christmas pageant the night before over at the elementary school. It seems as when they were getting ready for this Christmas pageant and rehearsing it, the little boy who was the innkeeper at Bethlehem, he was from one of those traditional families, kind of a rough kid, but they just didn't come any kinder. 
just as generous as he could be, basically a nice guy. Well, he stayed right with the script in rehearsal till they got the place where Joseph and Mary came in the inn and asked for rooms. And at that point, he departed from the script. He said, well, folks, he said, we're filled up here right now, but he said, you just sit tight and we'll take care of you some way or other. Well, the teacher stopped the rehearsal and she said, now that isn't right, that won't do. Well, he said he didn't like what they did there in the script and he was the innkeeper and he thought that he should use his best judgment. Well, she said, you can't use your judgment here. You have to reenact what actually happened. She took him down to the principal's office and the two of them together, they explained to him that if he departed from the script, then everybody else who had memorized their parts all off, wouldn't work. Finally, he decided he'd do it. He didn't like it, but he'd do it. Well, the night came for the pageant, and all the parents and relatives and friends were out. They had a full house, and the teacher and the principal were both backstage where they could help direct the pageant, and everything went along well till the time when Joseph and Mary entered the inn. And the teacher turned to the principal with her fingers crossed, and he gave her the same sign. And they were relieved when they heard the little innkeeper say in a big, firm voice, there is no room at the inn. Well, the teacher went like this to the principal, and he smiled, a big smile of relief. And Joseph and Mary were costumed, and they looked very realistic, and when they got that word, their shoulders slumped. And they turned, and they started wearily toward the door. Well, that was a little too much for the innkeeper. <laughs> he said, just a minute, folks. <laughs> He said, it's the God's truth, we ain't got no room. <laughs> but he said, stay and have a drink anyway. <laughs> well, <clears throat> can I have that? Uh, <laughs> well, the teacher said to him, turn him out of the inn. Well, he said, now look, I told him we didn't have any rooms, but he said we can do something. Well, that's the way it is. With Rotary, we can't solve the whole problem, but believe it or not, we can do something, and we can do something that is significant. This is the point that I'm trying to get over on the importance of Rotary meetings. There are certain words that are going to have to be written on the hearts of every generation, and we have to make sure that they're perpetuated through continuing organizations, continuing organizations of leaders, and those words make all the difference between everything and nothing. What's written on their heart? Remember that magnificent old story from the scriptures of David and Goliath. And when David announced that he would fight the giant, the word went into the king who was in his command tent on the field of battle. And the officers around the king said, Why, sire, he's a simple shepherd boy, a singer of songs. Well, you see where the officers missed the boat. They had never heard the songs. They didn't know the words by which this boy lived. And we've got to have the right kind of words. We've got to have the right kind of words to live by, and we're going to have to have the right kind of words to die by. Or we're not going to do either one of them very well. This is a place where we can perpetuate some of these things. The thing that I love about working with people, the reason I keep working, the reason I stayed in the school business directly for 24 years and more in education now than I've ever been before, I think the reason for all that is I found out a long time ago several things. I found out when you're dealing with people, you can change the answer. Giles has heard me say this in teachers' meetings, I'm sure. This is a magnificent thing about dealing with people. Now, when you're dealing with science and mathematics, the answer is fixed and final and all the good intentions in the world can't change a single thing. But when you're dealing with people, you can change the answer and you can make it 
better. This is the thing that kept me going all the years. I was glad Giles mentioned Midnight Secret and the horses. We do live on a horse farm out here on West 10th, and you're all welcome to come out there any time that you can. We've raised a lot of horses there. We've done very well. Through the years, we've had hundreds of colts born there. And they're all over America now. John knows about some of these because he officiated at some of the ceremonies. <laughs> and those horses have done very well. They're royally bred. They're beautifully bred. I was pleased not long ago out at Indio, California. They had a horse show, and the only one of our horses that lost was beaten by another one of our horses <laughs> in Indio, California. Horses born right here on the farm. And as he mentioned to you, Kay has ridden them to world championships. So it's gotten to be a, a thrilling thing. And you'd think, though, after a while, we'd get tired after so many have been born. But I'm glad that at our house, we've never gotten calloused about that. I mean, we're just as thrilled when a new colt arrives as we ever were. And on the night a colt's born, no one sleeps at our house, and they're always born at night. <laughs> you know, in all the years, we've only had one born in the daytime. And we had an eclipse of the sun one day, and one old mare got mixed up on what time it was. <laughs> Now, uh, Dr. Haley knows Mel Alexander, and, uh, and I know Giles knows Mel Alexander. A lot of you folks do. Mel's been with us out there ever since we've had the place. He's the salt of the earth. I mean, we just couldn't operate the place without him. He's perfectly wonderful as a citizen and as a workman and as an associate and as a horseman. And he goes through the same ritual every time we have a colt born and it never ceases to thrill the rest of us. Ere the colt's born, as soon as he hits the straw, and he starts struggling to get up. Well, of course, the natural tendency is you'd like to help him. But nature says don't help him. We rub him and we get him dry and the mare works on him. But you let him alone until he can get up by himself. And then uh, nature says when he can get up by himself, he can stay up. Well, finally he gets up. And it's quite a sorry spectacle when he first gets up there. He's standing there with his legs prattled out here like a sawhorse. And his knees are shaking and his neck muscles won't hold his head up and his head's down and his ears lop forward. Pretty sorry looking start. And that's when Mel always comes in with his ritual. Mel will say, poor little fella. He don't look like much now, but he's got good stuff in him. And if somebody will just have faith in him and love him and give him some good training, and give him a chance. He'll say, Lord, Lord, there's no way of knowing what great things he'll do. But he's seen it happen. He knows that what he says is true, and we know that what he said is true. Well, if that's true of an animal, if you can get that excited about a, an animal, what about a child? I think the thing that thrilled me all through the years is that when you're dealing with children especially, you never know who you're talking to. If they just have a chance. Albert Hubbard said one time, he was driving out along the road back in the horse and buggy days, and here was a kid plowing with a team of horses, the stern plow. He had the line over the left shoulders and tied together and coming out from under his right arm, and he was wearing a frazzled straw hat. And Albert said he just stopped, and he watched him come up to that end of the furrow, and as he started turning go back down the other way, the kid smiled at Albert Hubbard out from under his frazzled straw hat, and then he started back down the next furrow, and Albert said, I just watched him go... And Albert Hubbard said, why, I don't know who that boy is. Maybe someday I'll be sitting in a courtroom on trial for my life, and maybe it'll be that boy right there who's at the council table with me. And how I come out 
will depend entirely on him. Someday, he said, they may wheel me into an operating room and put a cone over my face, and while the darkness of night and death steal into my veins, maybe it'll be that boy right there who'll be standing beside the operating table. And how I go out of there will depend entirely on him. You never know who you're talking to when you're talking to a child. But they've got to have words, wonderful words of truth that have to be perpetuated. We've got that job to do. Now we say, and we have always said, the ultimate source of individual freedom under the American system is faith in God. I'm talking about the basic nature of human freedom as actually conceived in America and given to the world through Rotary and all the other institutions we've got to perpetuate with words that live, with words that endure. You see, we actually gave the world something new. We gave the world something that said, we believe all men are born free and equal. They are endowed not by any earthly power, no mortal government. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. First they said inalienable. Then they amended that to make it unalienable. You couldn't even give these rights away if you wanted to. That's what that means. Now there was a totally new concept, the sovereign individual created in the image of God, inheriting his rights directly and his freedom directly from a heavenly father as the son inherits from the father. That was new. Now, I said when I talked to our own Rotary Club here about a year ago, I'm one of those who's deeply concerned that the country that gave that concept to the world is now the only country in all Christendom where it's illegal and unlawful to voluntarily pray in the public school system. I'm concerned when I realize that Marx and Lenin said we've got to get religion out of everything before the communists can take over. That's, that was basic in their doctrine. And I'm amazed at some of the people who are helping them. And I'm shocked and I'm astounded at the progress that they're making. I think we've got a lot of misguided people on this thing, helping with this thing. I agree with Billy Graham that as far as I'm concerned, the Supreme Court of the United States should never have gotten into this thing at all. Now that they're in it, you see, they can't quit. Now that they've gotten themselves in it, they're going to have to make some more decisions. They're going to have to decide whether it's constitutional to repeat the words under God when we salute the flag. That case is before them now. They sidestepped it two months ago. It's still in the courts. They're going to have to decide whether it's legal to have chaplains in the armed services. They're going to have to decide now that they've gotten themselves into this thing, whether it's constitutional to say in God we trust on the coins. They're going to have to decide whether it's legal to even open the Supreme Court itself with prayer. You stood up here a while ago and you sang the last verse of America. Do you know that the Commissioner of Education in the state of New York has ruled that no school child in New York can do that in a public school building, can sing that because it's a prayer? Now, where are we going to quit on this thing? When are we going to stand up and be counted on some of these things? I like something that the superintendent of schools down in Atlanta, Georgia, said. I was down there to do the kickoff drive for the United Fund, and I got in there early in the morning. It was a luncheon meeting, and I picked up a copy of the paper, and there was a report of the speech that the superintendent had made the night before, and it was a good speech. And I sat with him at the head table that day at noon, and I commended him on it. He said, we're not going to violate law in the Atlanta schools. If the Supreme Court says we can't pray, we're not going to pray. But he said, we're going to teach the God concept. 
Unless we can teach the nature of God, we can't teach the nature of man. Unless we can teach both of those things, and I mean teach them, and the relationship between the two, we can't teach the meaning of American freedom as conceived on these shores. See, this is our problem. I think we're going to have to start standing up and being kind. Our federal courts especially have gotten so much impressed in recent years with the rights of minorities and the rights of individuals. Now, I believe in civil rights. I believe anybody who didn't believe basically in civil rights would have a hole in his head. But we've gotten so overly concerned about part of the definition of democracy that we've forgotten about the rest of it. Now, democracy says it's a system whereby the rights of individuals and minorities shall be protected. But there isn't even a comma there. It says, but the welfare and the wishes of the majority shall prevail. Without that, you simply don't have democracy. This is why I agree with Billy Graham. Of course, I agree with Billy Graham on a lot of things. I agree with Bishop Sheen, who came out and supported the Becker Amendment. I'm in favor of the Becker Amendment to restore prayer and Bible reading to the schools if people want to do it voluntarily. <laughs> now, that is, the, that is the legal way of doing this thing. I was up in Boston when Cardinal Cushing said, I'm 100% for Billy Graham. I said, I'm 110. <laughs> and I am. I have a friend in theological seminary in New York. This fellow's one of these Ivy Tower theologians. He comes down out of the tower once in a while just to pick up his laundry and goes right back up. He, he is literally out of this world. And we were having lunch, and he was condemning Billy Graham. And finally it dawned on him I wasn't adding anything. And he said, uh, well, he said, your silence is deafening. He said, you must be a Graham man, huh? I said, yes, I'm a Graham man. I said, you know how many people like you, in my estimation, it would take to do as much good as Billy Graham does out there where the battle is being fought? Well, he said, what would you estimate? Well, I said, if you march 20 abreast, I think it'd take you six weeks to march by one point. That's how many of you it would take. He said, well, I contend that evangelism does not last. Well, I said, a bath doesn't either, but it's a good idea to take one uh, once in a while. Of course, I'm not one of those who, I'm not one of those who thinks the Supreme Court, everything they do, sacrosanct, this isn't disrespectful. I have been critical of the Supreme Court in a great many speeches, and I have never yet said anything as harsh about the Supreme Court as the minority of the members have said about the majority on several cases. But I just don't believe those boys bring those verdicts and those decisions right down from Mount Sinai personally. <laughs> They've got too many five to four decisions. They've reversed themselves more than a hundred times. You can't be right every time and do that. And when they have those five to four decisions, that means one man's judgment is inviolate. I don't believe that. I told one group that one man might be Judge Douglas. And I say that any man who will marry a girl a third his age could be wrong about some other things. Uh, <laughs> Now, what I just said then, again, isn't even unethical. The American Bar Association would approve of that. That's used in the courts every day. That's called discrediting the witness. If you can get the witness on the witness stand and show the jury and the court that the witness was wrong about one thing, then they can assume that he is wrong about some others, you see. Perfectly standard system. I think we're in grave danger when our national organizations of our churches begin telling the local churches what to do and taking the government too much out of the hands of the laymen who are supposed to be the governmental groups of these churches. 
Almost every Protestant church national organization is against prayer and Bible reading in the public schools. The heads of these churches nicely have said, we represent all the Protestants, and the newest survey shows that after all the propaganda and everything that's been done, 88% of all the people in America still want prayer and Bible reading in the public schools. And we're going to have to start standing up and being counted. My associates and myself carry on a series of projects. I'm terribly proud tonight of one of those projects, one of those projects to which my associates and myself devoted two years, a prodigious amount of work, the project to make Sir Winston Churchill an honorary citizen of the United States, the only man who was ever accorded that honor. Saturday night, I sat with the governor at another meeting down here at the new Ramada Inn, and I reminded him of a meeting in Washington, and he remembered it very well. Well, I addressed that meeting in behalf of the Churchill Project. There were 72 congressmen in that one meeting, and they came up after it, and they said, we can't get the Churchill bill through in this session. It's too late, but we will make it the first order of business in the next session. And you remember they did exactly that. In fact, it was the only bill that passed for the first six weeks of that next session. And the governor remembers that very well. I remember on Churchill's 90th birthday, we had a dinner honoring him. And I was so pleased that the Britishers attending that meeting agreed with us fully on why it was that Winston Churchill was the greatest man in the whole world. He understood, as no other man ever understood, the significance of liberty under law. Do you realize that the British have had a governing parliament for 700 years? We wonder sometimes why they don't get along down the Congo. No experience whatever in self-government. Only three college graduates among all the natives. Most of the rest of the folks, fifth grade education, and the rebels are trying to kill off everybody with a fifth grade education. And we wonder why they can't make it. The British have been successfully governing themselves for 700 years. Churchill was a historian. He knew this 700 years. He knew it as the back of his hand. He saw certain things go up and certain things go down. He knew what had to be conserved. This is what leadership needs in our day and time. We need a philosophy. We've got to transpose information into understanding. We've got to transpose facts into a philosophy. A leader needs to formulate, no matter whether he's a leader in business, a leader in a civic club, whether he's a leader in the church, a leader in the profession, or a leader in the government, he needs a philosophy of living that is sound and solid and tested and true. And that philosophy will predetermine that he will make pretty good decisions in the crisis. He can't think so good in the crisis. But the right kind of a philosophy will predetermine a pretty good answer. What can be negotiated away, but what can't be compromised? What must be conserved? So when they called Churchill back to head the government when Hitler was threatening the whole world, he came before the House of Commons for his first speech. Of course, what the House of Commons wants to know here, what is the government going to do? That's the purpose of the prime minister's first speech. And they never wanted so much to know as they did that time. Well, he went before them and he said, you ask me, what is our policy? And I will tell you it is to wage war, to wage war with every resource at our command, to wage war on land and sea and in the air, to wage war against the most monstrous tyranny in all, the long, lamentable catalog of crime. You ask me, what is our goal? And I will tell you it is victory. Victory no matter what the cost. Victory no matter how long it takes. Victory regardless of the suffering and the terror 
involved because he said, understand this, without victory there is no survival of everything decent for which mankind has been struggling upward since the beginning. No compromise. He was with basics now. He had the things that had to endure now. He didn't say, we're going to fire a few token shots and make a few token raids and see if we can make a deal and compromise. He didn't say, well, maybe we can talk Hitler into just being happy with Europe. We let him keep all that if he'll let us alone. Nothing of that kind. Almost nothing to fight with but words. But he said, victory, unqualified. Because without this, there's no survival. This is what we've got to tell the people. This is our problem now. We can't compromise away basics. We need to go into rotary meetings. And we need to understand what is important, where we can take the words that have to endure, we can refine them, we can work out a philosophy, what's important and what isn't, what must be conserved and what we can negotiate away. This is the great possibility for this kind of thing that we're doing here. And this is why I think these meetings have never uh, had such great potentials as they have right now. I was out in San Francisco just the other day and here came a parade of young socialists. Stop the American aggression in Vietnam. That's what their sign said. A bunch of beatniks. And I stopped the first one and when he stopped, they all stopped just like a row of dominoes, a sheep. And I said to him, did you buzzards do any parading when the North Vietnam communists invaded South Vietnam and blew up the American barracks in a sneak attack and killed our American boys? And were you out with your signs that day? They said, no, no. I said, did you get out your signs and parade up and down the street here when the American missionaries down in the Congo were murdered by a bunch of savages and cannibals? Did you think those missionaries were committing aggression? Did you get your signs out? Were you incensed? They said, no, no. I said, you don't understand. I said, that's right, boy. I don't understand. You never parade anywhere in the world when Americans are killed and when our freedoms are going down the drain and sacrificed. It's an astounding thing. Why we take this? Why we keep on letting this go by without being challenged? I've been writing our congressmen. Where are our congressmen? They're going to get some fire under the thing. They're going to get some fire under the boiler and they're going to get a little concrete in the back bones. We need loyal opposition to stand up for the American principle. We can do this at the local level, but you can't do it if you're afraid of talking about anything that makes a difference. I wish we had time to talk about the philosophy of leadership. You can't be a leader if you don't know what your policy is until you open the morning mail. And then you decide every day what the policy is. You're going to ride out in all different directions. We have much too much of this. I happened to be up in South Bend the day the Studebaker folks announced the new labor contract. And they said, this is a forward-looking thing. This is entirely new. The labor uh, leaders' pictures were on the front of the paper there, and they were praising Studebaker for this magnificent contract. Actually, the labor unions almost wrote it themselves. They did form the classification of the jobs. And I mean, they did the honey of a job classifying them, too. They had three different kinds of fellas pushing one cart. And when they got through with that contract, Studebaker was paying 70 cents an hour more for the people who built its cars than their major competitor. An utterly hopeless situation. And I said, this is the end of Studebaker in America. I always had great respect for Studebaker. I talked to their Studebaker management one time and I told them that the proudest day in my life when I was a kid was when my dad would come by with a new Studebaker wagon 
Those wagons were made right there in that same place. This is an old and respected institution. But that day they negotiated the way, the right to manage, you see? And when you negotiate away the right to manage, all human experience shows, if they'd only had the right kind of a philosophy, they would have known they then put themselves into a place where they had responsibility without authority. You can't survive. So leadership in business must know what can be compromised and what can't. By strange coincidence, I happened to be in South Bend again the day Studebaker announced they were moving to Canada. No warning at all. Wham! They shut the plant down. On the front page were the same fellows, same people who had been commending them on that great labor contract. And now they were telling what a dirty deal it was. No warning, all their investment lost, all their seniority lost, all their retirement system gone. You see, they negotiated away the right to manage. We're in danger in this country right now of negotiating away basic things. The big problem in America today is are we going to stand up for everything that we know is fair and just in the way of law and order or are we going to try something else? The big problem in the world is are we going to stand pat? Are we going to actually prevent any further inroads anywhere in the world on communism? But the big problem in America today domestically is this kind of a problem. Are we going to have law and order or are we going to have anarchy? I believe in civil rights. I'm a lifetime student of Booker T. Washington. This isn't something I fixed up so I'd have something pretty to mention tonight, by the way of an illustration. I mean, uh, always I've studied Booker T. Washington. If you take that speech book that you mentioned here a while ago, you don't even need to read it, just look in the index and you'll find Booker T. Washington referred to more times in that book than George Washington is. Because that was a speech book and Booker was a better speaker than George. See, that's all there was to that. He was a great Christian gentleman. He was a great educator. He was a great American. And Booker T. Washington always said to his people, you will never achieve equality by demanding it in mobs. You earn equality as individuals. This was his basic philosophy, first, second, and third. He never deviated from it. He established an educational institution so they could be better qualified to earn equality as individuals. He used to say to the boys, now when you get more skill, you can get a better job. When you get a better job, you make some more money. And he said, when you get yourself up in the world a little bit better, he said, you'll marry a girl who's smarter than you are. And he said, you'll have kids who are smarter than either one of you. And he said, that's the way we go. That's the way we progress in the world. Somebody told me about the Chinese uh, man named Wong, and he said to his wife, he says, our new baby, white, barely bad. And uh, Mrs. Wong said, I know... Uh, two Wongs don't make a white, but oxidants will happen. <laughs> well, he said they'll have babies smarter than they are, and they give them a running start. They've got more ability, they've got more opportunity. This is the way we do the thing. I've seen this thing start. I saw it, as you folks said. I saw it start down in the South as a racial problem. It broke through down in Birmingham. But you know, I was all over the country when this thing happened. I was all over the United States, and I remember what the people said. They said pretty much the same thing everywhere. They said, well, that's too bad, but they said, those folks have been sitting on that volcano down there for a hundred years. Now, they can't say they didn't know they were sitting on a volcano. They can't say they didn't know it might explode sometime, and, and that's what's happened. It's erupted. It's too bad. It's damaging their schools. It's damaging their public institutions. It's a too bad. He said, it's, it's hurting business. But they said, after all, they asked for it. In fact, they begged for it. That was the general consensus. But you know that volcano did what volcanoes do sometimes. It kept on erupting. 
And the molten fire and lava went higher and higher, and it rolled out farther and farther, and now it's in New York. Now it's in Boston and Philadelphia and Cleveland. Now you'll find it in Detroit, and you'll find it in Chicago and Denver and Los Angeles and Seattle. And now the people are saying, how do you shut off a volcano? Now the problem in America today transcends civil rights. A big problem in America today, are we going to have law and order? Or are we going to have anarchy? This thing got so far removed that in the riots in Harlem and the riots in Rochester and over New Jersey and down in Philadelphia, here you have people actually rioting and smashing the store windows and looting the shops and stores of their neighbors and friends in the name of civil rights. We had some folks in a meeting get up and murder a man in the name of civil rights. One black man murdering another one. When these things happen, we've got all these people who say it's the black ghetto. They call it the Negro ghetto. They never talk about a Negro settlement anymore. It's a ghetto. Everything's a ghetto. The inference there is clear. The inference is they are discriminated against. They've got a bad situation. Therefore, they have a right to violate the law. Well, I won't get it. I've read Jesus of Nazareth speeches, every speech he ever made. I never found one place ever where he told anybody if he lived on the wrong side of town, he could violate the law. I made a speech to a national convention in New York. I said, I know this ghetto situation. I went to school here in New York. I lived in New York. I can remember Harlem all the way back. And I have never yet seen somebody come up with this in print and point out the fact that the ghetto in New York is not Harlem. The original ghetto in New York is right where it's always been, over on the other side of town. And they have had every problem that anybody in Harlem ever had. Racial discrimination, tenement living, poverty, lack of education, lack of opportunity. They've had it all. And they have never in the original ghetto had a mass violation of law. Not once did they ever rise up and smash the windows and the stores and loot and rob their neighbors and friends in the name of seeking freedom or rights. What they said in that original ghetto was this, we've got to leave the ladder up. That ladder we call opportunity. That's the only thing we could ever guarantee to the American people in the way of equality. That's all it ever was. You can't guarantee that all the people will have equality of results. There's no way to guarantee equality of achievement. The government can't do that. No one can do that. The word in America is equality of opportunity. So they said in that original ghetto, they said we will leave the ladder up. We don't want to pull the ladder down. Now we can't all get up, but some of us can. And up that ladder out of that original ghetto will come some of the greatest businessmen in America. Up that ladder are some of the greatest statesmen in America. Have come some of the greatest entertainers. They couldn't all get up, but some of them could. Some of the greatest athletes. This is what we mean. You can never guarantee that all the people will go up the ladder the same distance. You have given people equality when they all have a right to put their foot on the first rung. And then each one goes as high and as far as his ability and his willingness to work and some breaks will take you. Well, Mitch Miller led the choir down there on that meeting I was talking about a while ago, and I swear if he didn't criticize me, and he said I made a Fourth of July speech because I asked the young people to observe the law. Mitch is one of those fellows who thinks it's all right to be patriotic one day a year. And he called it a Fourth of July speech. And he also criticized me because I criticized the intelligentsia. Well, when the reporter came and told me that, I said, I don't know why Mitch should be upset about me criticizing the intelligentsia because I belong to it and he doesn't. <laughs> take something besides that goatee to make a philosopher, you know. Now, what have we got? We've got all these people now, we're talking about moral law. 
Here's one of the trends. If Rotary wants to do something, let me make a plea to you. If you want to do something that counts, bring people in before your clubs who will tell people that the only way freedom can survive is the way that Winston Churchill knew was the only way. That's statutory law. Liberty under law. This is why he said Hitler's got to be defeated. People can't be free if their freedom depends on the whim of a man. It's got to be law. He knew this. This is essential to everything. But I'm astounded and I'm shocked at the amount of people in this country who are being sold on moral law. National church organizations are doing it. One national church organization actually adopted a minority report of one of its committees and voted to reimburse any minister or layman in their church who was arrested and fined violating law in regards to civil rights. A man who's been on that board for years came in my office when he came back and he had tears in his eyes. He said, I don't belong there anymore. I guess I don't understand him anymore. He said, if that's what the church is going to do, put a premium on law violation, even pay their fines, what have we left for the hoodlums? What have we left for the gangsters? I made a speech on this thing down in Oklahoma. When I got back, I had a letter from Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, the great editor of the Tulsa Tribune, the man who wrote that wonderful speech that got around last year. If you're familiar with it, you ought to get a copy. Called, Who's Tinkering with the Soul of America? Magnificent speech. Jenkins Lloyd-Jones. He wrote me a letter and he said, I don't know how to overemphasize how you would exaggerate the importance of what you were talking about down here today in this meeting. He said, do you realize that the people who are advocating moral law for civil rights are actually damaging the people they're trying to help. Because if minority groups can adopt moral law and they believe in equality, then they must grant that majority groups can do it. And when majority groups do it, Katie, bar the door. And he pointed this out, that after the war between the states, and any student of history knows that what I'm going to tell you now is true, and what he said was true. After the war between the states, when the Ku Klux Klan, the original Ku Klux Klan, was running rampant and burning and murdering and pillaging and lynching, Jenkins Lloyd-Jones pointed out the truth when he said they were following moral law. They were absolutely sincere. They were doing the things that they were convinced in their hearts they had to do to save their most sacred institutions. They were fighting fire with fire. They were obeying moral law. Now that's moral law. If I were in a minority group, the smaller the minority, the less I'd talk about moral law. And if I were a minority one, I wouldn't mention it at all. I wouldn't say, folks, now let's all just handle this the way we think best. That's probably what they're doing anyway. I'd get it on the statute book. And then that statute book and me, when we went in the courtroom, we'd be a majority. This is the only way there can be freedom. Churchill knew it. Liberty under law. This is what we've got to teach the people. They don't understand. Somebody sent me a social studies unit. He said, my daughter is studying this in school. It was prepared for her class by the faculty and by the students. And you know what the name of the social studies unit was? The amazing success of civil disobedience from the Boston Tea Party through Mahatma Gandhi and down to now. Now, the people who prepared that were nice people, good people. They couldn't see any difference between the people in the Boston Tea Party and Mahatma Gandhi and the violence that's going on in this country right now. You see, the people at the Boston Tea Party and Mahatma Gandhi were protesting uh, rules and regulations and unjust laws by a foreign government. They would never have a vote. They would never have any legal way 
of correcting that. And yet here these people were lumping them all together with what's going on now where the people do have a legal right. The government of the United States is not keeping anybody from voting. They're trying to get them so they can all vote. You can't lump these things together. I was in California when the students were rioting at Berkeley. Here were 800 students putting on a sit-down strike in the administration building. Now, they called them students. We checked this thing out very carefully. 40% of these kids were never at any time ever enrolled in the University of California. We took these people and we checked them against the list of people who were carried out of the Palace Hotel on the sit-down strikes in San Francisco last summer. Same names. We checked them against the people who were carried out of Automobile Row, the Cadillac strike and all the others where they went in and sat down and took over everything all last summer. Same names. Same people. These are the students this time. We checked them against the people who were finally arrested and carried out of all the food stores up and down the peninsula. Remember what they were doing last summer out there? They'd go in these food stores and they'd load up all the baskets, take them up to the cashier and dump them on the floor and laugh and walk out. Same people, same ones, professional agitators, left wings, communists. Well, the member said to me, what do you think we ought to do? I said, I think you're doing fine. You arrested all this bunch of punks. And by the way, Pat Brown did something right once. <laughs> he said, this is anarchy. And he sent in the police and they carried him out. They arrested them all. I said, you've done something right. Now leave them out. How many thousands of good California kids did you have that wanted in this school last September and couldn't get in? Oh, he said, I wouldn't know. He said, we had thousands of them. I said, in heaven's name, keep this 800 out. Let 800 kids come up here who want to go to school instead of trying to... He's a mediator. They said he doesn't want to administer the board policies. He wants to mediate between the law and the lawless and compromise everything away. Well, I said, he's just a fine guy to fire. And the quicker you get that done, the better. I came back and I called Henry Bubb, who's a member of the Topeka Club and chairman of the Board of Regents here in this state, and I told him about the Berkeley movement, as I had seen it. And they'd already gone to Columbia University. They'd already gone to Michigan. And I said, if they come to Kansas, I hope you will show them how we treat a bunch of that kind. He said, we'll be ready. Uh, what do you do if you go the other way? You want to know? Look at the Latin American universities. They've gone the other way. The students have taken over the management. In the Latin American universities, the students can actually fire an unpopular professor. And it's a most tragic situation. It's not an educational institution. They are producing nothing. I was down in... Texas in September. We had a tremendous meeting. I mean, they had the Rotary Club and the sales executives and the Chamber of Commerce all out, and the real estate board. I don't know how they happened to get them in it, but they had, uh, they had those four out at the country club. We had a meeting. We didn't even spend much time eating. We just had some light refreshments, and then we had a meeting. It lasted three hours. I mean, it was a lollapalooza. This thing turned into a revival before we got through. And when it was all over, the president of the school board came up there to me. He said, I don't think you could ever know how much good this meeting's done us tonight. He said, you didn't know, did you? That we had a strike threatened out at our high school. Today, he said, all the kids descended on the administration and they don't like the homeroom system. And they're going to strike tomorrow unless we alter it. And he said, we had a school board meeting this evening. And he said, we all left the school board meeting wringing our hands, no action. But he said, we're going to have a meeting yet tonight. We're going to have another one. And he said, I can tell you what we're going to do this time because we've got a majority of the members here. He said, the superintendent's coming over and the principal's coming over and we're having a meeting over at my house. He said, when the kids meet tomorrow with their demands, he said, we're going to have the principal read this statement from the Board of Education. Now, the Board of Education, the statement's going to say, is the only legal body 
that has the power to make the policies under which this school system will be governed. We are elected by the people to do this, no one else. We are the only ones that have the power to levy taxes and to maintain a school system. Now, if you young people cannot learn to work under legally constituted authority, there is actually and truly no use of you learning anything. Of course, you're not going to make it anyway. So we're going to give you now one minute to get to your correct homerooms, the one that was assigned to you. And if you don't want to go, they said the statement's going to say, we couldn't care less whether you go or not. We couldn't care less what your name is. We couldn't care less whether it's one of you or all of you. Now the minute is starting, now. What do you know, before I left the airport the next morning, I called the president of the school board. I said, how long take the kids to get to the homerooms? He said, 40 seconds. <laughs> he said, we gave them a minute, but they gave us a little change. Now this was the finest thing that they could possibly do. Truly, truly, if they can't learn to work under legally constituted authority, they might as well not learn anything because they're not gonna make it Anyway, this is the thing that we've got to tell our people. And let's not be afraid to indoctrinate them. The modern teaching idea is this. Let's give the students all the facts on one side and all the facts on the other side and let him make up his own mind. Said if that's all there is to it, you don't need any teachers, just hand him some books. But he needs still to be taught by precept. He needs to be taught by example. Let's give him all the facts on one side or the other, but he has a right to know which side the teacher's on. And the teacher should stand up and be counted and have some convictions on things that have to be preserved and that have to be conserved. You know, we have gotten the idea. I'm talking about my own kind of people now. We've got the idea among so many scholars that if you have any convictions about anything, you're not scholarly. What you want to do is just get all the facts on both sides and then smoke your pipe and do nothing. This is scholarship, according to a great many people. I want to read you something that somebody sent me. You're probably familiar with it. When I was young and bold and strong, oh, right was right and wrong was wrong. My plume on high, my flag unfurled, I rode away to right the world. Come out, you dogs, and fight, said I, and wept. There was but once to die. But I am old, and good and bad are woven in a crazy plaid. I sit and say the world is so, and he is wise who lets it go. A battle lost, a battle won, the difference is small, my son. Inertia rides and riddles me. The same is called philosophy. Dorothy Parker wrote that, and she didn't confuse inertia with philosophy. She knew it was inertia. But we've got a lot of people who think it's scholarship. You don't have any conviction about anything. I always like what Dr. Dooley said. People used to criticize Dr. Dooley, some of his scholarly friends. He'd get ready to do something and they'd criticize the way he was doing it. And he said, well, maybe you're right. Maybe this isn't the best way, but I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> this is the thing. We've got to have some convictions. Let's preserve this. So if I'd say to you tonight, if I could make any contribution at all, let's make our rotary meetings places where we transpose information into understanding, where we transpose facts into a philosophy of living. Let's make it a place where we keep bright the words that we're going to have to live by and we're going to have to die by. Let's make it a place where we go and refresh ourselves and restore ourselves by the wonderful words 
that'll give us meaningful convictions about the things that have to be preserved.